0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today we're going to talk about tax. I'm joined by Dr. Karina Doorley and Dr. Barra Roundtree, who are Senior Research Officer and Research Officer respectively with the Economic and Social Research Institute. We discuss why we need taxes, why it can why we need to get it right and what can happen when we get it wrong. So these are all interesting things and also... Something that's very topical and interesting is why it has been very important in helping uh, protect the vulnerable during the COVID-19 crisis. So we, dis- we discussed some of the tools that are used to understand the tax benefit system, particularly micro Now that's the workhorse when it comes to analysing a lot of tax and welfare changes, and we provided an introduction on how it can be used to give some insights that are inaccessible by many of the more commonly employed methods. Karina and Barra take us through some of their work, and this is an area which I've worked in myself, and I pitch in where I can. So a quick reminder before we start that I have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash irish econ pod, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash irish econ pod. If you enjoy the podcast to the value of a cup of coffee a month, Patreon is a way to say Thanks. I'm very grateful for the six patrons who've signed up so far. It's a small token but it means a lot in keeping everything going. Okay, so without further ado, I'll leave you and let you enjoy the conversation. The first thing we were going to discuss was just the issue of looking at the tax benefit system and how important that is and designing a good tax benefit system. So I think Bara, you were on the on the chop here to try and see well to try and help us explain of what What's a good, constitutes a good tax benefit system or what are the goals of a good tax benefit system?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, the the state last year raised around 70 billion in taxes and spent around 20 billion on transfers to individuals and households through the Department of Social Protection, Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection is now called. And so, you know, that's a really substantial amount of money and it's therefore really important how it raises that money and what it does with it. And I think you can kind of look at the system as broadly having two goals so that's one way of looking at it. and that's to redistribute resources between people with much to people without much uh, and also then providing insurance and so we can kind of go through them in, in, in turn and so you know in terms of redistribution I think one way that it's useful to look at what the system does is if we look at the distribution of income before tax and benefits Ireland's one of the least equal countries in the EU so that's if you, you use the you know look at the Gini coefficient which is Probably the most common measure of income inequality that's used by by social scientists. Not necessarily the best, but it's it's, it's certainly the most common. And so, if you look at that, we're we you know we're up there in, in 2017. We're, at the, we're we're it depends exactly how you measure, but we're at the top of the table. We're are in, in the top three or uh, three or so. However you measure it, um, but once you take away taxes and add on welfare transfers and pensions, we drop back down to mid table. So very much in 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 the middle of of um, European. Uh, countries um, and so you know in, in numerical terms that you know you can see that as as the tax and welfare system redistributing resources and to give a sense of the scale of that redistribution it reduces the Gini coefficient from 0.544 to 0.306 in the the the, uh, the estimates of these so that's around 40 percent so that I think that really gives a scale of you know one thing that the tax and welfare system done is does is to redistribute and it does that by significantly reducing inequality
0: so we're so we're reducing the, the difference between the rich and the poor by forty percent, essentially. Or we're taking out that inequality by forty percent.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 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 so you know that that, that so those are those are big numbers. Um, uh, I think I think he's made the best way to look at it. To to go to go down by that much of the Gini coefficient, you know, to get small moves of even one percentage point would be quite big. Um, to get it down by forty percent is really really substantial. But that kind of gives you a sense, I think, of you know the system has that role of redistributing resources around it. It it taxes those who have. Put, uh, lots of resources at a point in time and it transfers that to people who don't.
0: Mm.
2: And I think kind of that, that kind of leads into then another, the other important role of the tax and welfare system, which is providing insurance to individuals and families. And so I think that you can kind of look at this in two ways again. So one one aspect of this is kind of a formal type of insurance where people pay PRSI, pay-related social insurance contributions, and you pay them during working life and that entitles you to contributory benefits, both in working life, so things like job seekers benefit if you lose your job but also in retirement, um, like the contributory state pension, so paying PRSI through your life entitles you to that. So from that point of view, you can kind of look at what the system does as in part insurance, but it also does this in kind of more of an informal way. So the the state provides lots of means-tested benefits that you're entitled to regardless of whether you paid sufficient PRSI contributions. So that's things like job seekers' allowance rather than benefit, disability allowance, rent supplement, one-parent family payment, and then also there's a non-contributory pension. Um, if you if you haven't built up enough of uh, entitlement to the, to the to the main one, to the, to the contributory one, and and so those are kind of finance out of general taxation, um, and so what you can think about then is what the system is doing is by taxing people when they're in work, uh, in paid work, and they're they're earning money, and then providing kind of essentially a consumption floor for when when they're not, the system is kind of providing this in, informal insurance, and in that is not directly linked, but what it is doing is providing that consumption floor so that if you experience a change in your circumstances, if you're hit by, you know, a disability or a health shock in your life, that there is this kind of consumption floor there. And that's a really important and valuable role of what the system does. And maybe one that we look at less, uh, not even as economists, but certainly in terms of public debate, I think emphasis is on redistribution. But that insurance is really an important aspect of what is done.
0: Sure. That's really interesting because I was all, would always have thought of it. And I think a lot of people would think more in terms of redistribution and maybe evening out different, like helping people who are maybe less well off and or need a helping hand. But this aspect of insurance and sharing the risk with, like socialising the risk that some people might hit a health shock or some people might hit some sort of unforeseen impact that it, it plays that role. And I
2: suppose, like, so I think maybe people do... Look at the the formal element in terms of PRSI and say, you know, well, I paid into the system, so I'm entitled to take stuff out. But there's also this more, I think, larger and in a, in a way more important informal role. In that, even if you don't make those contributions, just the the, the system operates in such a way that it, it does socialize that risk, and the state is very well placed to take on that risk um, and be, be be the provider of that one. But it does, so, you know, in order to do that, it needs to levy taxes and it needs to means test benefits. Um, And that inevitably affects the uh, decisions that individuals and families make over a huge range of things, like, you know, from how much or whether they work at all to when they have children to how much they invest in education and training. So from that point of view, then, I think it's really important to examine the design of that system and ensure that it's achieving the things that we wanted to achieve with the lowest uh, possible cost or the the, the least um, possible number of unintended consequences.
0: We're thinking about tax benefit system in terms of sharing or maybe socializing risks and helping those who need a helping hand, but by imposing these policies, we are changing the incentive or affecting the incentives faced by individuals so basically, if you have a certain uh, certain cost or certain sort of tax burden at a certain level, that might affect your incentive maybe incentives to work is is one people always talk about, I suppose, or other incentives and I think, Karina, you've done work on this or something like this in terms of the incentives. And maybe you could tell us something about what a good incentive is and maybe then and then talk about some of these sort of perverse incentives that people try to try to avoid.
1: Sure. And so, well, let me give you an example of a policy that can have important behavioral implications. So this is um, social assistance. So some research I did a couple of years ago looked at the behavioural impact of the French social assistance scheme. And social assistance is like a benefit of last resort. So if you've exhausted your entitlements to all other benefits, or if you're just not entitled in the first place, you get social assistance. And the French scheme, the uh, revenu minimum d'inception, as it was called at the time, um, it's quite like schemes in place in other countries like Canada, Denmark and Luxembourg, in that it has an age condition. So if you're age under 25 and you have no children, you're not entitled to French social assistance. And the reason for including an age condition like this is really to encourage young people to join the labour market, because once they are attached to the labour market, they're less likely to leave. So what we found um, was that there was actually a significant decrease in employment at age 25 for the least educated in France. So about 7 to 10 percent decrease in employment. And what was happening really was that a proportion of young high school dropouts were actually waiting to turn 25 in order to avail of social assistance. And I don't want you to think that they were kind of, you know, just mechanically waiting until the 25th birthday and then dropping out. What was happening really was that um, because these people were low earners and um, they were more likely to be on short term contracts, they had less attachment to the labour market. What happened is they just um, didn't search as intensively for their next contract as they approached their 25th birthday. So we do see that and because they knew that this, this safety net Was coming up. So they had this safety net to fall back on once they turned age 25. And um, the design of this policy actually distorted individual job search behaviour at a pretty crucial time for career development. Um, And so I suppose that's kind of a a good example of where there was a disincentive and maybe somewhat unintended disincentive. But actually the reform of that policy, which happened in 2009, um, sort of corrected that. So what they did was they said, okay, now you get to keep a part of this Um, social assistance benefit when you take up a job. So it became like an in-work benefit. And this actually increased so you still had this safety net there for people who needed it. But in-work income was then uh, higher compared to out-of-work income for people who joined the labour market. So there was this extra incentive to work because you got to retain some of this assistance. and So that was uh, probably a good example of this where uh, policy was used to increase incentive to work and work very effectively.
0: People always think about these incentives and think well they think about it in as an, an ex, a conscious decision, but it sounds more like that this was just something in the background that just it sort of guides people maybe away from what would happen otherwise. It's not necessarily a conscious decision.
1: That's right, and I, I mean it can be hard to evaluate what the counterfactual is, right? So we. we we don't know for sure what would have happened if, let's say, this social assistance was extended to everybody. So, and um, you know, if you were entitled to it from age 18, it's likely there that the employment effects would have been even larger, right? So, there would have been decreased incentive both to find a job and to stay in a job after age 25. But it's quite difficult to, uh, to it's quite difficult to know what the counterfactual is. So, obviously, the you know the uh, policymakers have to you know use their best judgment and the evidence available in designing these policies designing these policies.
0: And sometimes there are unintended yeah. consequences like this one that need to be corrected at a later date. And just before we move on, so that paper used regression discontinuity, isn't that right? That's right. For, 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 the, uh, for the, the data nerds here, I'm, I'm a big fan of that method. I think it's really cool. But could you tell us a bit about how you actually, you know, estimated your effect
1: yeah, so I, I mean, I really like re- regression discontinuity as well because it's, it gives you this lovely visual effect um, that's very easy to see and to understand as well. I think so. The I mean, the, the major assumption underlying regression discontinuity, and for the purpose of this paper, was that 24-year-olds are essentially the same as 25-year-olds in most characteristics. Right, so you would expect that employment probabilities would be sort of stable across these two age groups. Uh, in the absence of any kind of distortionary policy. Um, the thing for regression discontinuity design is you need a really large sample size, right, To in order to get, like, quite a robust effect. So we used the French census data, uh, which is great, very big sample size. Uh, we had a quarter of the population, so about 14 million observations. So we were able to do this nice subgroup analysis where we compared 24, like, in its most basic form, you're comparing the employment rate of 24-year-old high school dropouts to 25-year-old high school dropouts. And the, the effect was... Uh, quite, uh, I mean, it was quite robust. You could see it even in descriptive statistics, looking at raw employment rates, fitting more um, sophisticated models later on showed effectively the same um, effect. So that's a, a kind of the nice feature of regression discontinuity design, you know, a natural experiment like that is you can visualize and interpret the results quite easily. Um, so I, I used regression discontinuity for the first part of that evaluation. So looking at the effect of the existing policy, But um, and that's because there was data available. So we had data, for individuals who uh, were, you know, the population that was subject to this policy, but for the reform where the um, policy was turned into an in-work benefit, we didn't have data. So there, we had to use microsimulation, right? And this is where microsimulation uh, becomes very handy and can be used as a tool both on its own and alongside other um, types of method like this. So microsimulation allowed us to construct a counterfactual: so what would have happened to their income if they had been subject to this new policy? And then using a labour supply model fitted
0: to this new distribution of income, you can, um, you can uh, look at how this would affect uh, the labour supply. Interesting. Yeah, very nice. Um, it's a nice combination of methods. And you actually bring us on nicely to maybe discussion, discussing some of the methods that are used um, for like distribution analysis and evaluating tax benefit. Um, so you guys work in microsimulation and I've done a bit of microsimulation as well. And... One thing that I find is is that a lot of like what's really in vogue nowadays is estimating the average effects and like regression discontinuity, these really nice ex post type analysis that tell us what has happened after the event and we can look back and see what's going on, but that can answer certain questions, whereas micro-simulation can then help us answer maybe looking forward ex ante type analysis, what if something happens? And especially if we're looking at maybe tax benefit type type changes or or um, something that, that re- revolves around a rule that you can actually simulate w- with confidence. Maybe you could tell us a bit about the sort of work you do in terms of looking at, at, at the tax benefit system when it comes to a micro simulation or, or how you implement it.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I suppose I'd argue that micro-simulation is a very powerful tool that can be used on its own or in conjunction with other methods and allows you to answer these kind of what-if questions. So what if we change this policy? How can we expect the distribution of income to change? How will this affect people's behavior and so forth? So the ESRI micro-simulation model is called SWITCH and it's linked to the Irish component of the Survey of Income and Living Conditions provided by the CSO. And, and it's form it's a tax benefit calculator linked to survey data right so what you can do is you can change the parameters of the tax benefit model and see how this changes the distribution of income in the survey that you're using and um, so i'll give you the example of the french social assistance research they, like this kind of evaluation of the reform wouldn't have been possible until the data was released unless we used micro simulations that kind of evaluation would have been very difficult without a uh, micro simulation let um, me maybe give you one more example of where um, micro-simulation can be useful that we've um, kind of been doing in the last couple of years. So uh, we carried out some gender budgeting work at the ESRI a couple of years ago. So in this work, we took a look at how tax benefit policies over the 10-year period surrounding the Great Recession affected um, income of men and women separately, okay? And to do this, what we wanted to do, we want to abstract from all the other changes that had happened during the Great Recession, employment wage, demographic, etc. So what we did was apply two sets of policies and um, to the same income distribution. So we took the 2008 policies and the 2018 policies and applied both of these to the 2018 income distribution to see what exactly the effect of changing the tax benefit policies over this period, what effect that had on um, men and women separately. And what we found that was women's income was disproportionately affected during the Great Recession because they were more likely to be receiving welfare payments, which were frozen in nominal terms during the period, most of the period at least. And they were also more likely to be caring for a child at a time when things like child benefit and one parent family payments uh, were cut. So that's kind of another example of looking at something beyond an average and something that would have been possible without the use of a, a model where you can actually change the parameters of the tax benefit system and apply them to the same population.
0: Sure. So you can get that insight into how things, not just the effect on the average individual, but how it affects individuals across the spectrum. And you can look at policy changes that are perhaps haven't happened already, um, which is very important when you think about when, when you need to make a decision, when you need to make a policy decision and you don't have that information. Um, it, it Like I, I think a lot of the academic work seems to be focused on what, what has happened and getting this really clean effect. It's almost like a footballer taking a perfect free kick Whereas sometimes you need to score the goal in different ways and you need to find out you don't actually have that, that, that pure um, method in place. Whereas it's still, it's still a valid insight, but it's perhaps not as pretty as maybe your, the regression discontinuity insight. But, um,
1: You've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all love a lovely, clean, experimental design to get a nice, precise effect out. But in the absence of that, when you're working with exactly. what-ifs and counterfactuals, microsimulation is a, is a good tool.
0: Although not not quite as exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's more it's definitely very functional. Um, but so the the switch model then is, is what's known as a static model. It's that it, it's a snapshot in time. You you have this effect. You're looking at what happens now, um, and you you have a counterfactual and you compare one thing to to the other, as opposed to maybe looking at more dynamic models where you want to see how things happen going into the future. If you want to see, look at say for example. Changes throughout the life course, um, effects of, of pension policy, how it might affect maybe future generations, uh, decisions like that. I don't know if you, either of you have done any work in, in that regard or I'm just bringing this question on you <laughs> without any breath.
2: Um, so a bunch of the work I've done has tried to look at exactly that to try look at, well, Okay so we we typically look at inequality or redistribution at a point in time um we kind of take people's incomes as they are or as they report them in a particular month or in a particular year and we know that people's circumstances change a lot over time so both because lot of things have a steep age profile you know people tend to not work in their early years and they're maybe a lot undertaking education or, or training tend to then move into employment work for a number of years sometimes people drop out when they have kids for a while and come back and then as you kind of get towards retirement um people tend to kind of scale back their involvement in the, uh, the labor market or there's some people who do, who do at least and so that kind of means that there's really important life cycle aspects to looking at things like redistribution and and um and inequality and so work that i've done using both real panel data longitudinal data over a period of about 18 years and also then a kind of a, a micro simulation approach where you kind of invent essentially people hypothetical you can, you can try to estimate well what would people's lives look like uh, uh, over over time and looking at that we could, kind of the work some of the work i've done has shown that well i think the big things are that inequality is a lot uh, lower than, than it looks like at a point in time. That's not to say it isn't substantial, but it, it is less. And because that's because people are often going through transitory shocks. So, you know, if, if you see people without yeah. income at a point in time, some for some of those, it's because maybe they're taking a few months off between jobs or because they're taking time off to go back maybe to education or training. Um, but it also means that um, some of what the, the the tax and benefit system, what looks like redistribution is actually essentially payments from one from a person from one it's kind of an, essentially enforced savings it's it, it, it's 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 redistribution across one person's um, life so say from their working life to their retirement um and so for you know it gives you a slightly different perspective on what the the, the tax and transfer system is doing and um it, it's it, it's kind of a growing area I think of research uh, both both in terms of looking at income inequality and redistribution but also then trying to say well we know that lots of welfare programs or taxes have important long-run effects, and that these effects can potentially be longer or so larger in the long run. That you know that, the, that these dynamic effects can can build over time, and that you know maybe it's the case that if you have lower taxes, that people invest more in in, in education, and then also maybe you know the, the fact that it makes you get more take-home income from working today. That means you work more today, and that improves your Return to working tomorrow. So there's these important type of dynamic effects that increasing economic research is looking at when analysing the effect of tax and transfer reforms, uh, and also then in terms of inequality and redistribution.
0: Okay, so I'm going to interject here for a moment to tell you a bit about spatial microsimulation. We've mentioned static microsimulation and dynamic microsimulation models, and the final type of microsimulation model is a spatial microsimulation model, and this is something which is close to my own heart, as I've done some work on this, and hopefully you can allow me to indulge myself for a moment. So essentially, a spatial micro model is where we want to look at the distribution of an impact at the sub-national level, be it a county-to-county level or a neighbourhood-to-neighbourhood level. But we only have the micro-data at the national level. So a spatial micro model is one created by re-weighing the national data using regional data, such as census data, Nowadays, however, we can do that in a world of big data, and we can. I've seen papers using really cool methods using mobile phone data and similar similar uh, spatial data that that sort of that can be found uh, in everyday today life. So, why do we want to know the spatial distribution of impacts? Well, maybe we want to know where the poor regions are if you want to target some sort of regional development policy. Maybe we want we want to target specific social services to certain areas, plan the spatial distribution of healthcare services. Sp- spatial microsimulation gives us the evidence to make informed decisions in that regard. We can know where the vulnerable populations are and then we can plan uh, spatial allocation of these resources accordingly. My own applications in this field have been in the field of environmental and energy economics. My PhD was on wave energy. It was 80,000 words to say, well, how expensive wave energy is going to be. But back when I was doing that in the late nineties, wave energy was motivated in Ireland on grounds of regional development. It was very expensive, and we could have put up a lot of wind from the of subsidy uh, expenditure that was willing to be put into uh, wave energy. So this was a big question, and I used the spatial micro simulation model to see, well, what was the benefit to regional development of this uh, investment of this establishment of a hypothetical industry and compare that to the cost, the subsidy cost and the burden of that cost. Now, the cost was a subsidy uh, that was levied on electricity expenditure. So the electricity consumer incurred an additional cost. It was an increase in the bill for everybody. And the benefit then was this localised employment. So we compared this first round benefit with this first round cost, not taking into account multiplier effects, of course. But looking at these effects, no matter what way you cut it, the cost was greater than the benefit. In terms of total cost between region inequality, total region inequality increased. The cost was greater, greater than the benefit in, in measures of regional development. So in that context, there was no industrial policy grounds for wave energy deployment looking at these first round effects. Um, more recently I've been doing perhaps more exciting work developing more precise methods for matching microdata to spatial regions I spent some time at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research where I got access to really cool uh, climate data and using a Mexican case study I matched spatially disaggregated climate data with a spatial micro simulation of deprivation so I, I simulated uh, measures of uh, Deprivation and poverty for Mexico, um, and sm- at the small area level. So why why is this interesting? Well, up until now, when it comes to identifying area- areas that are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, these are generally calculated according to perhaps the the, the climate impacts, the weather, the heat, the drought stresses. Efficient policy intervention then, with that data, is targeted at regions where the stress uh, occurs. With this um, new framework, we can combine the, the areas that are most affected by the climate shock and where those that climate shock coincides with a vulnerable population. So you can target uh, the, most, uh, the areas that are most vulnerable to uh, climate change. So this paper is really nice because we show how inefficient policy can be in helping those most vulnerable when we don't have adequate data to target um, the right populations. It's all a work in progress, um, but hopefully I'll be able to share more details when it gets published soon. Okay, so back to this main discussion. But one thing, so when we look at the the micro-simulation, and we mentioned already that uh, it's important in the sense that you have... um, you have, uh, it's an ex-ante tool and you can use it to look at what's going to happen in the future. I think that's really important when you need to get analysis out quick. And that was really important when it came to COVID. And you guys had a paper on basically what the distribution impacts of the, the COVID uh, policy was and, and maybe the, the immediate response. Maybe you could tell us a bit a bit about that.
2: Yeah, sure. So we looked at the impact that the introduction of the pandemic unemployment payment um, AKA the PUP and uh, the temporary wage subsidy scheme. Uh, so we, we, we looked at the impact that they had um, in terms of, I suppose, cushioning the impact of job losses from in, induced by the lockdown. And we find that they did, they did a lot of work to do that. So, you know, I think, I think-
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
2: plushcare.com slash weight loss i think the one that stands out to me is that we estimated that um in the meat so we ran a few different scenarios and the, the our medium scenario probably is kind of closest in terms of the total number of job losses uh, our, unfortunately our high scenario was probably a bit on the low mm-hmm. side even for for the, the number of people who lost their jobs or on the weight subsidy but if we just take that medium um uh, scenario where we said around uh, 600,000 people lose their jobs so we found that the policy response meant that the sh- number who lose more than 20% of their disposable income was reduced by about a third from 400,000 families to 280,000 families and essentially what's going on there is that because of the the PUP and um, in particular um, but also the temporary wage subsidy scheme that really reduced the proportion of families who by losing their job would experience a really sharp decline in their income and um, because previously they would have had to say rely on the uh, job seekers um, payments or you know and, and essentially in order to qualify for the the job seekers benefit it's based on the number of contributions you made two years ago so anyone who would have started work in the last two years mightn't have been entitled to that and would have instead been had to go and apply for mean sets of job seekers allowance. And that would have all taken a lot of time you know there, there's the, the forms to fill out these to, to get these benefits are are long, and you know you need to go along and provide lots of information to your local job center and so by introducing in particular this flat rate payment of three hundred and fifty euro a week. The government were able to really cushion the impact on on families right across the distribution, um, and really reduce the number who are seeing extreme losses. And so, you know, and, and from that point of view, the number who we, we estimate that the number who would have lost more than sixty percent of their disposable take-home income was reduced by almost half, from about seventy thousand families to forty thousand families. So there's still a lot of people who are hmm. losing a lot of money, but it really that 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 policy response was really, I suppose, swift and strong, um, and and. Really was focused on getting money out there to families at short notice, and not really worry about worrying about the targeting um, initially. And so, from that from that point of view, so I think I think we were kind of quite positive about the the, the cushioning effect that had. And also, if you compare that response to other countries, it was able to. Get that money out to people much faster. Um, you know, there, there's in, in in the UK the, the the system of universal credit was made more generous. That's their kind of like uh, their safety net essentially there. But it you know some it was taking you know several weeks in some cases a month for people to get that payment. And um, so so the Irish funds really was a lot swifter and and was very generous but it's also very costly and so you know we estimated that the because of the measures introduced um the costs of a hundred thousand people losing their job will be around 800 million more every quarter than it would have otherwise been so the policy response did a lot to cushion incomes it did so at quite significant costs um, and that's going to kind of, it's going to create issues in the, in, in, in the months, I suppose, ahead in terms of the recovery, in terms of how do we move away from, uh, from that system in place, which was very much designed with being temporary, speedy and strong, but ultimately creates other issues.
0: Absolutely. So it, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's, so how I would have, I would have seen it as, as being basically, we need to get something out there quick, you know, to, to, time is of the essence and that was the response um but now it it seems to be at the stage well how do we tweak that for the long term and how do we maybe progress on the pathway out of the the crisis and how would you guys see that evolving or have you done any research on that or heard any rumors on your travels?
1: Well, I mean, it's likely that these payments will be tapered or cut over the next few months. And um, if we take the two kind of main policies separately, from the point of view of the pub. and um, as the economy recovers, the fact that this payment is so generous will mean that there is reduced incentive for people to work. So um, research by some of our colleagues at the SRI up is actually close enough to the t- take home income of somebody working full time on the minimum wage. So in order to provide an incentive for people to work, particularly at the moment where there may be um, people may be worried about their health, maybe worried that, you know, if they go back to work, they'll be more likely to contract COVID. It is important to provide incentive to work. Um, so right now, that's probably not much of an issue because much of the economy is still, you know, either closed or reopening very slowly. But as our recovery progresses, um, this is likely to be an issue and it's something that would need to be addressed, um, you know, in order to encourage people to go back to work. So um, providing this incentive to work can be done in two ways. So either we cut the pop. Right. So we uh, bring it back to, you know, either it's pre-pandemic level of job seeker benefit or job seekers allowance or something in between. And this means that out of work income will be relatively higher compared to or in work income, sorry, will be relatively higher compared to out of work income. Another alternative would be to allow people to accumulate their payment with their earnings as they go back to work. So that would also provide an incentive for people to rejoin the labor market. So that's um, kind of on the pop side of things for the temporary wage subsidy scheme. Um, eligibility for this scheme is based on, uh, currently it's based on firm turnover. So firm turnover had to uh, decrease in order for firms to be eligible for this subsidy for their employees. Um, But withdrawing it based on the same criteria would be a mistake because this would provide an incentive for firms not to increase their turnover, right? So, um, but the, the issue is as the economy recovers, the dead weight associated with this scheme is going to increase. In other words, we're going to be subsidising firms that no longer need it. And it'll be hard to tell which firms are which. So really, the timing of the withdrawal of this scheme is going to be crucial. So if um, policymakers decide to withdraw it too soon, some firms that may have been otherwise viable, um, if they have continued to get it for another couple of months, they might go under. If policymakers decide to withdraw it a little later, and um, the cost of the scheme really spirals. So that's going to be the really tricky part about withdrawing the temporary wage subsidy scheme.
0: And there's a lot of nuance required there to try and understand who who is who who really needs the payment. Um I don't envy anybody trying to to make those decisions, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, um okay, well that that's really interesting insight. Um so I suppose moving on, some work that you guys have done, maybe looking at income inequality in a more general sense and how that's evolved throughout the years. Now I know Barra, you've done work in terms of Ireland's income inequality, how does how has progressed maybe over the last few decades? Maybe you could tell us a bit about what some of your findings there. Yeah, so
2: despite the fact that kind of income inequality has been rising in most advanced economies over recent decades, and that's very much the narrative that I think people have in mind, so disposable income inequality in Ireland has actually fallen substantially over the last you know thirty odd years, so from between 1987 and 2017. The Gini coefficient, again, that commonly used measure of income inequality, where zero means that um, income is, uh, in, you know, in, entirely equally distributed. Everyone has the exact same. And one means that one person has all the income. Um, so on that kind of scale, the Gini fell in terms of disposable income from 0.333 in uh, 1987 to 0.306. So that's around a 10 percent fall, um, yeah. which really is quite significant and actually sort of statistically significant. But. Um, but the, it, we, the, you see the same story on most other measures. So if you look at kind of you know decile shares of income, if you look at ninety ten ratio, if you look at the 90, all these different summary measures of income inequality, our, disposable income inequality in Ireland actually fell over that period 1987, 1987 to twenty seventeen, and in fact it's you know the only other country OECD country where disposable income inequality has fallen significantly over the same horizon as france so you know our our experience is really quite different to other countries in particular say the us where i think maybe you know a lot of discussion is about where the gini Gini coefficient there has risen the top 10 percent share has been rising while median incomes have been you know the incomes of people in the middle have really been stagnant and even falling in in real terms accounting for price changes depending on how you measure it and so i think that really can kind of illustrate the importance of studying what's going on here in ireland and not just assuming that what's happening elsewhere also applies um now, now that said i think there, there's <clears throat> some caveats to kind of to, to that so we we have very poor data on incomes at the very very top and so you know we can't really say anything in terms of ireland about what's been going on with the the top one or even 0.1 percent so we don't know are they racing away from you know the other 99 percent of us or 99.9 percent of us and that's something actually where I think there's scope for us to learn a lot more, because, you know, if we can get access to data collected by the revenue commissioners, in particular, if we can combine data from business records with with um, income tax payments, with capital uh, gains uh, tax returns, I think there's the potential to learn more about what's going on there at the very top, because, you know, there's, there's it's now not just about employees um, or even the, the self-employed. There's now what's happening in other countries, and I think, the same is likely to be going on here, but it'd be good to kind of look at this and understand this, is that there's now a significant tax advantage to taking your income in the form of dividends or capital gains tax to having your own company, storing income in that and selling it off. And then you, you can pay uh, tax on that at a reduced rate of 10%. So you know, that, that's an important aspect which hasn't fed into the story really here at all. And again, I think is likely to be particularly important at the top. Um, but it's not something we really know about because we don't have the data. And that's, I think, really... Well, it's an unfortunate thing at the moment, but there is the capacity to do that. And hopefully that's something which we, we can do and, yeah. and learn more about.
0: OK, so you have to inspiring two questions. One has, so first of all, we're talking about disposable income. So this is income after taxes yeah. and transfers. But So essentially what's driving the low the, the decline in disposable income then tends to be any tweaks that have been happening with the tax benefit system. Would that would I be correct?
2: Um, so that's a, one important part of it, but actually, you know, it, it, the, the, I think the story in Ireland is really interesting, and we need we should be, do more on it, and there needs to be more work done on it because, so, so, kind of think what, what you are kind of getting at is is that at the same time that disposable income inequality has fallen, market income inequality, in terms of in terms of that bit that that you do see on your payslip um, yeah. before in, in terms of your gross salary before taxes inequality in that in market income has been going up Um, so it's not it's 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 a smaller rise so it's you know the market income Gini coefficient went from 0.523 to 0.544 over the period 1987 to 2017. But you also had something kind of interesting going on there. So, you know, we have a range of different summary measures. The Gini coefficient isn't, despite the fact that the only one you usually ever hear is not the only measure. We have a range of summary measures. Some of them are kind of top sensitive to what's going on at the top. Others sensitive to what's going on at the bottom. And if you look at these over that period in time, the Gini coefficient and the top sensitive measures do suggest that market income inequality has increased. But actually, you know, those measures that are bottom sensitive suggest it's actually fallen a bit. And so what you, what, you, what you kind of, and, and, and so I've, I've looked at this a little bit, and again, I think there's still a lot more to be done on this and the Irish experience, and I think it's a really interesting thing that people should be looking at. But what we saw in Ireland is actually stronger growth in earnings, both weekly earnings and hourly wages, at the very bottom of the distribution that was actually strongest and, and at the top, in the mid, and it was a little bit lower in, in, in the middle of distribution. But So it means that there's kind of a complicated story going on there. But then also one of the factors that feeding into this higher market income inequality is... The changing patterns of employment uh, within couples. So, you know, we've seen a big rise in in the employment uh, of women in Ireland. It's it's really shot up, and you know, we, we were really kind of laggards in in that. We had very low rates of participation in the labour market uh, among women and, and until quite late in the the twentieth century, by comparison to other countries or other European countries, anyway. And and you know, before, one thing that is going on there is that. Actually, a lot, a lot, we now have a lot more high-income two-earner couples. Um, and, and so, you know, you would have been in a position where previously you were more likely to have two people in work if a family was low-income. Um, now it's actually the other way around. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things tied up in that. But what that does mean is that's a contributing factor to the growing concentration of market income inequality, Particularly at the top, in that in that you do have a kind of a changing structure of families, a changing structure of the labour market, and how that feeds through is more complicated than maybe I think the the kind of the story that we sometimes hear or or, or, or discuss.
0: And you mentioned another thing there about maybe a lot of people may, might take their income in different ways, maybe through some sort of a company. Could you maybe just break that down a bit more because this is a story people might be interested in hearing?
2: Yeah, yeah. So. Um, there are a number of different ways you can carry out some economic activity. You can carry it out as an employee, you could carry it out as a sole trader, you could set up your own company and you could be the director of that company and you could also employ yourself a little bit, maybe employ your, your spouse and children as well for a little bit. Um, and all those different ways of carrying out, you know, you can potentially have a task, uh, some kind of economic activity, which can be carried out in all those ways. And we actually tax each of those forms of, um, of work differently. Um, so you know, mm-hmm. if you're, if most people understand, you know, will will be PAYE workers and they'll understand that. Oh, you know, I'm employed. I pay income tax, USC, and also PRSI, and my employer also makes a PRSI contribution. If you're self-employed, you pay income tax in USC, and you actually pay a little bit more income tax and USC than an employee of the with the same level of income would would pay. But there's no equivalent of the employer PRSI, and so there's actually this big wedge in terms of just looking at. Um, activity carried out by an employed person or a self-employed person, um, a b- big wage in the tax that is ultimately paid uh, across those two forms. And so this, this, again, this isn't something just going on in Ireland. It's something that the OECD have been drawing attention to about uh, it, both in, you know, in loads of countries, in Netherlands, the UK. Um, so that's kind of one aspect of it. Then another aspect is that, well, you don't only have to operate as a, a sole trader. You might be able to establish yourself as an, you know, a company, you um, set yourself up as the, and maybe some of your family as the shareholders of that. You take in the money, you pay yourselves a bit of salary. So you pay yourselves probably whatever the tax optimum uh, amount is. Then you save up, you know, pay yourself the rest in terms of dividends. Pay yourself a a little bit of a dividend. And then you hold income in the company um, until such a time as you're willing to get rid of it. And, you know, when you do, you can then avail of what's called, um, in, in here, entrepreneur's relief where you pay a reduced rate of capital gains tax on disposal of, of the asset. And that can lead you paying to, you know, much lower rate of tax than you would have otherwise paid if you mm-hmm. carried out that um, that task as a sole trader or indeed as an employee. So there's all these kind of, you know, there's different forms of economic activity that we tax differently and that lead to different levels of take-home income. And that's, I think, going to be, it's part of, kind of the gig economy story, yeah. but it's not really one that I think we've really explored in uh, here in Ireland as much as maybe we should.
0: That, that aspect of, of income is not captured, maybe, like the EU SILC data. So therefore, you need to have that caveat when you interpret yeah. those results, basically. Exactly.
2: And, and that becomes more important if it's, if it's growing, if this is a growing thing, as, as it may be. Absolutely. Again, we, we're not sure because the data at the moment isn't available yeah, exactly. for, for, for people like and myself and our colleagues here at the SRI to study, or indeed people at UCD or, or you know, all the other research institutes in the, in, in the country. We, I'm sure we'd all yeah. love to have access to that
0: absolutely yeah no that that's yeah that, that, that that's interesting insight um okay so to before we wrap up then you've both worked in terms of uh, looking at impact of gender and in relation to tax benefit systems and i think you've both done similar papers looking at uh, second earners and how changes Now, correct me if I get this wrong, but changes in how the tax system is structured between sharing tax credits between two earners in a household versus measuring it individually affects the incentive to work. Would that be correct? That's right. Maybe tell us a bit about about that. Yeah.
1: So um, let me talk about uh, individual taxation then. So um, before 2000, tax credits and bans were fully transferable between members of a couple in Ireland. So that means that if you had a one-earner couple, the earner, who's typically male, and uh, didn't pay tax at the higher rate until their earnings exceeded twice the standard rate band. So they had twice the standard rate band to pay the lower rate of tax, and after that, they paid the top rate of tax then there were a series of reforms enacted in the beginning of the noughties. Um, So the the plan was to move to a fully individualised taxation system, but it actually met with a lot of public resistance because it was thought to penalise women who worked in the home. So in the end, the series of proposals or the series of uh, policy changes was abandoned and a kind of hybrid system was introduced and that system is still in place today. So after this series of reforms, this one earner, uh, this earner and a one earner couple, and... paid the higher rate of taxation when their earnings exceeded one and a third the standard rate band, okay? And this actually substantially increased the incentive for secondary earners to work because only they could use the remaining two-thirds of their standard rate band, right? And secondary earners tended to be women. So um, research that I did on this reform um, found that this set of reforms increased the hours worked by secondary secondary earners, so married women, um, by two hours per week, and interestingly, I found like a symmetrical decrease in the hours of unpaid childcare that married women performed. That was about like two per week as well. So this is actually a really big um, increase in female labour supply. To put it into context, it was about five percentage points, And um, starting from a baseline, I think, of somewhere around 50%. So 50% of married women were working at the time. And after they set it so it was about a five percentage point increase. Um, And this is because uh, married women in particular are very responsive to uh, changes in the tax and benefit system. So they respond with labour supply. And men are notoriously uh, inelastic to changes in tax benefit system. So studies across countries typically find that men respond very little to changes in tax benefit policy. Their workers are either already working full time or they're not working and small changes to the tax benefit system have no way impact on that but women are responsive particularly married women and particularly when you affect something like this like their marginal effective tax rate so you know what, they, what they're going to pay in, ter, in terms of taxation once they join the labour market or if they provide an extra hour of labour supply so this is actually quite a big policy change and um, that did positively affect gender equality in Ireland so you can imagine the long-term ramifications of that you see a five percentage point increase in female labour supply you know 20 years ago that will have happened had impacts on the career trajectories of these women um, on their pension entitlements when they eventually reach retirement age on you know the role modeling that they're providing let's say for children or peers or anything like that so it's quite quite a big policy change
0: okay so a huge large effect for a a relatively well i suppose a hybrid policy so there's room for for a greater a great, greater shift, essentially. Yeah, yeah I
1: suppose to, I should caveat. Sorry, Barrett, cut across it. No, down. no, no, no. Um, this, this, poli- this series of policy changes was enacted when we had loads of money. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a big giveaway. So what actually happened was the, um, the standard rate band for... Uh, so this, uh, let me get this right now. The standard rate band for singles was unchanged. So there was no cuts uh, made. Nobody was paying extra tax, right? It was just mm. that... Um, yeah. Uh, let's say, the standard rate band of two earner couples was advancing at a higher rate than one earner couple. So one earner couples were kind of being left behind, but um, uh, in nominal terms, they weren't losing anything. So this was a this is kind of the, uh, the kind of policy that you can only enact when you have lots of money to spend, and that was the case, let's say, in the early 2000s. Right.
0: Okay, so it might be more difficult now to, uh, to, 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 yeah. to make a sooner change. Um you've done a similar study Barry. i think i remember on your your paper you looked at how it affected other decisions in the household is that right
2: yeah. Yes. That, that's right. And, and so I think kind of it, it, it ties in really neatly to to what Green was doing in that we kind of went partial went some of the way here uh, here in Ireland um, around the time of those McCreevy budgets when uh, when we had it we were spending it <laughs> and, when, and when we weren't we weren't um, but uh, for, yeah for, they went further in the UK and they they used to have a system of joint taxation as well and they kind of fully moved away from it in 1990 um, and they. Brought in a full individual system of taxation, and so I suppose what what I looked at is well, what effect did this have on the employment uh, of women because they were the people who are largely affected by, by by the change, and we think that are more likely to respond, but not just at the point in time that that this happened or in the kind of the, the years following it, but over the life cycle, because again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier that these some of these policies and some policies can have really important dynamic effects, and so what I looked at was well. How much would labor supply increase across the life cycle, and how does that interact with the decision of when to have children um, because particularly what I was interested in looking at was if in you know where, where this really kicks in or I think where it's re- really relevant is when you have uh, people take, second earners, usually women coming back from into the labor market after maybe taking some time off to have a, have a kid. And a lot of them kind of come in now part-time. They come in part-time because, well, if they come in full-time, they're at that point, they're paying the higher rate of income tax. And you know, then you have to have higher childcare costs as well. And so what that kind of, I think, encourages is for people to to come back into labour force part-time. And we know from lots of work that's been done in, in economics at the moment that that's really when the gender wage gap starts to really open up. Like, it exists a little bit beforehand, but it's really when it opens up is when women come back into the labour market, they they tend to work part-time um, and then as a result, they tend not to progress as fast in, in the career. So I think that's why, so I was kind of interested in understanding, well, if you did away with this additional disincentive, there's still many other barriers and many disincentives to, to, to go back into full-time work. And that's not to, yeah, this is just to kind of focus in on this aspect of the tax system, but there's this additional disincentive to to returning to full-time work. And that's really kind of where, where I found the biggest effects that. Essentially, in, in, in the kind of the the, in the way I looked at it and the, the way I, uh, I estimated it was that in response to this uh, reform of getting rid of a system of joint taxation, women tended to ha- push back the age at which they first had a kid and stay in work full time and go into and stay in work full time when they came back to work as well. So there's this important and that had kind of this snowballing type of effect in that by working more full time, particularly over their thirties earnings tended to be much much higher than they would have because that's really you know a, a, an important aspect of earnings growth is the kind of the returns to full-time work and so from that point of view the, the kind of work that I, I've i done um, really kind of shows that the effects that we know moving away from individual from joint to individual taxation can have might be even larger in the longer run because of these kind of dynamic effects.
0: Okay that's and to simulate those dynamic effects, you, like you simulated those dynamic effects, you weren't able to.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. alas, the data are not are not good enough uh, yeah. uh, in the UK or here or most countries. I think you know it's only really in Sweden and Denmark now where we're getting to towards the stage. Even though we're not quite there yet, where where you have. So wide enough data uh, and long enough on uh, long enough of a period of life that you you can potentially look at you know use data to look at these things. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the time, if you want to kind of isolate the impact of a particular effect, you're going to need to take undertake some kind of simulation approach or make some modelling choices. And you know, we can't, you know, and, and, and that has its costs, but it also allows you to get at and try isolate the effect of particular forms Yeah. No.
0: There's one thing I've learned from this discussion is that too to uh combine the simulation type papers with some sort of empirical ex post analysis it leads to a very nice uh, a very nice insight and also I think it can be yeah it could be more publishable. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Well we'll see about that <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but um okay. Well I think I think we've covered everything. So uh Barra and Karina, thanks very much. I really appreciate the time. Um
2: yeah thanks for having us on to
0: uh, talk about it. Okay, so thanks everybody for listening. Quick reminder before we go that we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash If you want to help towards keeping the costs down, Patreon is where to say thanks. And I really appreciate all the help that's been offered so far. Thanks everybody for listening and all the best.
1: warbyparker.com slash covered
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend